Hello, my name is Inosi Nyata, and I co-head the Sullivan and Cromwell Global Project Finance and Development Practice. With me today is Isaac Wheeler, who co-heads our firm's tax group. Hi, Inosi. And Sam Saunders, special counsel in our project development and finance practice. Hi, Inosi. Hi, Isaac. We're here today to talk about the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, or the IRA, which was signed into law in August 2022. It is landmark legislation that represents the largest investment in addressing climate change with significant tax credits, loans, and grants for clean energy projects and manufacturing. The IRA is expected to unleash a new wave of energy transition projects across the United States. With the wide array of tax credits, there's still many open questions about requirements and qualifications. Since August 2022, there have been several rounds of guidance from the IRS and Treasury. We wanted to have this discussion today to take stock of where we are now and where we're going, with a particular focus on the credits that are the most relevant for project developers and investors. Isaac, we'll start with you. Can you bring us up to speed briefly on what we know about the key credits for renewable power generation? Yeah, thanks, Anosi. So the IRA represents the largest investment in clean energy in U.S. history. It introduced newer enhanced credits for renewable energy, clean electricity investment and production, energy storage, clean hydrogen, electric vehicles, clean technology manufacturing, sustainable fuels, and carbon capture, among others. Most of the credits break down into one of two categories. We have the investment tax credit, the ITC, and that provides a 30% credit for qualified energy properties that assumes prevailing wage and labor requirements are met. And there are two additional 10% boosts. One, if domestic content requirements are met, and the other, if the project is located in an energy community. So all in, you can get a total of a credit equal to up to 50% of the qualifying basis in a project. Just some of the changes on the ITC before the IRA, Energy storage was eligible for the ITC only if batteries were connected to a solar energy project and so part of a solar project. Now the ITC is available for standalone energy storage technology with a minimum capacity of five kilowatt hours. All of this is really created a huge amount of work for the IRS and Treasury in terms of issuing guidance, and they've been doing a pretty great job of getting guidance out in a timely manner. And just last week, the IRS released guidance that lays out the requirements for the domestic content 10% bump in the credit. The other type of credit that most projects fall into is the production tax credit or PTC. And PTCs provide a credit based on the amount of, in the case of clean energy, the amount of clean energy, but the amount of out of what Congress is intending to incentivize. And the base credit for the PTC is 0.3 cents per kilowatt hour for 10 years with increases, so the 5x multiple, if the wage and apprenticeship requirements are met. So Isaac, those of us and others who are involved in renewable power generation, production, and projects are generally familiar with the ITC and PTC structure in that space, but the IRA has extended further beyond that. Can you tell us a little bit about hydrogen and carbon capture and how the IRA has affected those sectors? Yeah, absolutely. Clean hydrogen, new addition to the credit space by the IRA, and people are very, very excited about it. The hydrogen, it's a production tax credit, so it's based on the amount of clean hydrogen you produce. 
It provides a credit over a 10-year period of up to 60 cents per kilogram of clean hydrogen or hydrogen produced through a process with a life cycle of greenhouse gas emissions rate below specific thresholds. And the clean hydrogen credit toggles up and down depending on how clean your hydrogen is. So it's a function of what the greenhouse gas emissions are in producing the hydrogen. Similar to the ITC and the PTC, that 60 cents is multiplied by five if the prevailing wage and labor requirements are met, meaning the credit can be up to $3 per kilogram of clean hydrogen. And then on carbon capture and sequestration, there was a carbon capture and sequestration credit pre-IRA, but the IRA significantly boosted the credit. The base credit is now $17 per metric ton of carbon dioxide captured and sequestered and $12 per metric ton of carbon dioxide that's injected or used for enhanced oil recovery. And then there is this term direct air capture facilities and carbon that's captured under direct air capture uh, is eligible for up to a $36 credit and $26 if it's used as an injectant. And similar to the ITC and the PTC, uh, you've got this 5x multiplier. And then maybe more importantly, or at least as importantly, as some of the specific enhancements to the credits, there was a huge structural change that the IRA introduced. And that is many credits are now refundable some for everyone, at least for a particular period of time, and all for tax exempts. And now the credits can be transferred, meaning you can sell a credit for cash, which was not the case before. And so tax exempt entities are now potential players in the capital stack where they really couldn't have been pre-IRA. Yeah, and Isaac, there was a lot of buzz about refundability and direct pay transferability as we built up to the IRA. And now we have that in the IRA. Could you tell us a little more about how it works? I know we'll talk a little bit later with Sam weighing in on how that might affect structuring, but give us a little bit of a recap on what that actually means. Sure, sure. So for other than a few specific credits, which I'll get into in a second, the direct pay option or the refundability option is limited to tax-exempt entities, and that is tax-exempt entities, U.S. federal, state, or local tribal governments. And the thesis behind it is these entities don't have a tax base to be able to use the credit directly, and so absent a refundability feature, they would be inefficient users of a tax equity project. And now with the refund, they can participate in the project and essentially monetize the credit as efficiently as anybody else. There are also three credits that anyone can benefit from direct pay, but it's subject to a couple of rules. So those credits are the clean hydrogen credit, carbon capture and sequestration, and the advanced manufacturing production credit. For those credits, taxpaying entities, non-tax exempts, can also elect to receive refundable credits, but it's limited for the first five years after the facility is placed in service, and it ends no later than 2032. And then on transferability, anybody can transfer the credit. And the only limitation is that it has to be sold for cash to an unrelated party. When the transferee receives the credits, they are treated as the taxpayer that earned them for all purposes. And if they can't use them in the year that they acquire them, they can be carried back three years and carried forward 22. And that's actually a more favorable carry forward and carry back regime than credits that they might have earned directly. 
So the question we've all been getting from a lot of participants in this space as they process these features is what does this mean for project structures and finance plans? So could you weigh in on that a little bit? How has the landscape changed or what should various developers be thinking about in relation to transferability and refundability and the other features in the IRA? Yeah, so in order to claim the credit, you had to be an owner of the project. And so that required these complex tax equity partnerships in order to introduce a tax equity partner who really was looking for a return largely in the form of tax credits and depreciation. And I'd love to be able to tell you that as a result of transferability, we no longer have to think about these complicated tax equity structures, but I think they're going to have some staying power, even if the transferability has really broadened the scope and the sort of the optionality in in thinking about structure. And the reason that the tax equity structure may not just go away is one, depreciation deductions cannot be transferred. And it's often the case that the developer does not have a lot of use for the depreciation. And so was transferring that as part of the return to the tax equity partner. The second thing is that in the context of the ITC, where the credit is based on your basis, so your cost basis, what you paid for it, the structure where a tax equity partnership acquired the project usually resulted in a step up in the basis, sort of increasing the ITC itself. And so if the developer simply builds a project at the developer's cost and then claims the credit with respect to that, they'll have lost this step up that the tax equity structuring and the acquisition by the tax equity partnership featured. So I think even though the IRA really expands the possibility of structuring flexibility, I don't think it's the end of tax equity partnerships. Right. You know, that's very interesting. And Sam, why don't you weigh in from the transactional side? What are we seeing there? Yeah, no, I I completely agree with Isaac. On the traditional projects like solar and wind, there's still a lot of interest in the traditional tax equity structures. I think on hydrogen, carbon capture, some of the newer credits and newer technologies, transferability, direct pay may have a much larger role. One of the things that the IRA also does is adds optionality for multi-component projects. So if you have a project that has a renewable power generation, solar wind, that's hooked up to a hydrogen plant and maybe also has battery storage, you can elect ITC or PTC for the renewables. You can elect the hydrogen PTC for the hydrogen production. You can have the battery under the ITC. And you can have all of these as related party sales in effect or have no sales at all and just have them in one project so that you don't have to, as previously, have uh, you know an unaffiliated offtaker of, of either of those streams. So there's quite a bit of flexibility, which people are still kind of modeling and thinking about on how you structure these multi-component projects. So the sum of that sounds like it's not necessarily reducing complexity, but it's providing more flexibility in allocation of credits and in the players who might be able to benefit from them. Yeah. And I would say too in OC that the transferability election is made annually. And so for projects that have a 10-year stream of PTCs, 
you know, they can be monetized with a 10-year sale to one party, or you might find somebody that's only interested in the first three years because that's when they know they have tax base to be able to use them. And so I think there's going to be some flexibility within how people think about transferring as well. So not all the questions have been answered on direct pay and transferability. And there are a lot of questions out there about how it works in in terms of some of the specifics. Could you tell us where the key uncertainties are and what we might expect next? Yeah, on direct pay, we're waiting for mechanical process, documentation that's required. We're really waiting for a lot. And there's an interaction between the direct pay and the transferability that we may see some guidance on. And that is, it's not entirely clear whether a transferee that receives tax credits through a transfer, so a purchaser, can then elect direct pay for the credit transferred. I think it technically works in the statute, but there have been some suggestions that allowing a tax-exempt entity to acquire credits and then apply for a refund would essentially allow everyone to effectively acquire a refund. And maybe that's broader than the policy in the IRA. I don't personally agree with that, although I've seen it out there. But so there may be some guidance on that point. In terms of other uncertainties, how it applies with respect to entities, where particularly where you have both taxable and tax-exempt entities, where the recapture risk lies as between the transferor, transferee. Although I know, see, we discussed that as a commercial matter, it's probably going to end up with the transferor, with the developer of the project, just because they're the one who's really sort of attesting to the transferee that the credits are there and can be purchased. Yeah, so as you suggested, obviously, all of these uncertainties don't mean deals are not getting done. Deals are getting done, but there is a lot of risk allocation discussion going on. Uh, Sam, what are we seeing in that space in relation to how people are addressing this? Yeah, I think in the absence of good guidance yet, certainly this is really a sponsor risk to, to bear and it favors you know more creditworthy sponsors, established sponsors to be able to give indemnities and guarantees when it comes to tax risk. With the guidance, maybe that will change, but we also are seeing tax insurance as a key player, certainly for parties that are less familiar with the space and uh, less comfortable with the risk. That is definitely an option. I mean, if the IRS guidance says that the recapture is travels with the credit, then there's going to be an, an even more larger emphasis on indemnities, guarantees, tax insurance. So, Sam, we've talked about some of the uncertainties on transferability and direct pay, but there are also certain open questions on the hydrogen credit. Can you talk a little bit about that and what we're waiting for? Yeah, there's been a lively debate in comment letters to Treasury and IRS about what the requirements for the clean hydrogen tax credit should be following on a similar debate that happened in Europe. The key points are things like, do you need additionality, uh, i.e., does the renewable energy that is powering the hydrogen production, does you have to demonstrate that that is new electricity that wouldn't have otherwise existed? You're not displacing power on the grid. Things like also, how do you do the life cycle GHG analysis? How granular do you have to be in your time matching with the renewable electricity and the hydrogen production? Is it hourly? Is it monthly? Is it annually? So there's been a debate about that. And we're all waiting for the IRS to weigh in. And if they make it harder for 
hydrogen producers to get the credit, then obviously that will have an impact on how many of these projects go forward. It'll also have impacts on the administrative burden that uh, projects face when you know to satisfy the credit. So we're recording this on May 17th, 2023. And in the background, we have a lot of discussion happening about the debt ceiling, which is sort of just an illustration of change in law risk, right? We always operate in a space where there could be change in law risk, and particularly for such significant incentives, it is a key concern for anyone relying on them. Isaac, how should we think about this in this context in light of the debt ceiling discussions, but more generally? Yeah, it's a really good question, Anosi, because the credit space had sort of lived with this overhang of the credits continually sunsetting at the end of the year and having to be re-upped with extender packages. And one of the things that the IRA gave to the energy community and maybe falsely was this sense of stability that these credits were there for 10 years, that people could really plan into these credits being there. And what we've seen less than a year since its passage is that the Republicans, as part of the debt ceiling negotiations, have introduced a bill that would essentially repeal all of these credits and take us back to a pre-IRA world. Now, there are Republicans that are, you know, have voiced concern about a full repeal, right? You know, some of the energy communities that would benefit from the IRA are in red districts. So it's not a completely partisan issue, but I do think it's a little bit of a wake-up call for people that thought that maybe they could put their lobbying on the back burner for a little bit, given the lengthy sunset date for most of the credits. The other change in law that people need to be thinking about is, one, incentives for traditional energy could change the competitive advantage that clean energy currently has, you know, vis-a-vis incentives from the government. And then two, another one that I've been thinking about recently is in the context of Pillar 2 negotiations at the OECD, Pillar 2 is a construct where essentially all the OECD countries are adopting regimes to ensure that their home country entities pay tax at a 15% rate in each of the other countries. And how you determine the effective tax rate is unclear. This is going to be 120 different nations implementing the Pillar 2 regime with individual national laws. And so it may be the case that if you reduce your U.S. tax with investment credits, that Germany will say, well, you didn't actually pay a 15% effective tax rate in the U.S., and therefore you need to pay more German tax you know, for a German headquartered multinational as a result of that. And that weakens the value of the credits because they're essentially being undercut by additional higher taxes in other jurisdictions. So that's a big one to watch, particularly because some countries have expressed concern that the IRA is anti-competitive, and they may try to get at that with some of this Pillar 2 legislation. Yeah, so I think if you're involved in a project, either as a developer or an investor or lender, you definitely need to stress test the financial model to see what would happen if the credit was decreased or, or sunset early and think about how that risk is allocated. Would one of the counterparties be sharing that risk or is it a pure equity risk? As among the equity investors, are they all taking it or is, you know, for example, a financial investor looking for a fixed minimum return and the, and the developer is the one that's really taking it? 
so you know there's a lot of discussion and analysis about that in this context. Thank you, Isaac and Sam. Uh, clearly an area where there's a lot going on and a lot to come, not just U.S., but also how other countries react to the IRA and provide programs that may compete with it or take various other actions. And so we will continue to monitor this and provide feedback through client memos and other podcasts. So thank you, everyone, for listening. And we look forward to providing you with an update next time.